And now hear our lesson of the day from Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our refuge. You are our fortress, that you fight our battles. Lord, we ask now that you would come, that your spirit would instruct us, would strengthen our confidence in you, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, as Pastor Lusk has already said this morning, today marks the 504th anniversary of Martin Luther's nailing of the 95 Theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Responding to grave doctrinal errors and corruption in the church, Luther began to publicly oppose the teaching and practices that contradicted scripture. His opposition was met with serious political and ecclesiastical pressure. And not only was Luther's career at stake in this opposition because of his public stance, but his very life was threatened. It is said of Luther that whenever he heard of disparaging news, he would say, come, let us sing the 46th Psalm. And indeed, Psalm 46 was the inspiration for his great and famous hymn that we sang this morning, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. In many ways, the hymn is a paraphrase uh, and an application of Psalm 46 to the trials of Luther, to Uh, the trials of the true church that was under attack in that day. And Luther possibly composed this hymn on his journey to the Diet of Worms in 1521, where he stood on trial for charges of heresy. He placed his confidence in the Lord, and he defended his views at the risk of his life. Remember, heretics were burned at the stake in those days. Luther was in what appeared to be a battle against all odds. The Pope, the Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, were bringing their full power against this meager monk. Luther's conscience, however, was captive to the Word of God. Because he looked to the Lord for refuge, because he was confident in the Lord's promises, he knew that ultimately no one could touch him. Here again, these words from the hymn. That word above all earthly powers, 
No thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through Him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. I want to encourage you this morning towards this kind of great confidence in the Lord as we consider Psalm 46. The psalmist, or shall we say psalmists, since this psalm is written in a first-person plural point of view, begins with a confession that summarizes the whole of Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a well-proven help in trouble. The congregation is confident in God's ability to help, his commitment to help, to help his people, people no matter the danger or the trouble. With the Lord of hosts on their side, they have every reason to be confident and therefore refuse to be carried away by fear. Psalm 46 is about great confidence in the Lord that arises from a knowledge of the Lord's presence, his power, his past faithfulness, and promises concerning his future. And we'll look at those each in turn, his presence, his power, his past faithfulness, and his promises concerning the future. Before we look at those, though, let's consider the background and the situation within which the psalmists express their confidence in the Lord. Just looking at the language of Psalm 46 to begin with, we see this language of what appears to be a natural catastrophe. And I say natural referring to nature, but there's actually nothing natural or ordinary about this scene. Uh, they're using language of a kind of decreation. The earth is literally falling apart. The earth and the mountains are slipping into the raging sea. The waters are roaring and foaming up, causing great mountains to tremble. Mountains, these immovable, constant landmarks, are trembling and faltering and slipping away. The raging and roaring sea is taking them down. And as we continue to read the psalm, we see that it is actually nations who are raging and kingdoms that are toppling over. Here, as in many other places in Scripture, the nations are being depicted as this raging sea. These roaring waters are actually the enemies of the people of God surrounding and threatening the church. The sea is raging and the kingdoms are tottering. But what will happen to God's people? Where will they find refuge and deliverance? The historical context of this psalm is not made explicit but there are a few historical settings recorded in Scripture that present themselves as likely candidates behind this particular psalm of confidence in God's deliverance. The setting that seems to fit best with the language that the psalm uses is the story we heard this morning of Hezekiah and Sennacherib of Assyria. It's recorded in 2 Kings 18 to 19, and then of course we heard 2 Chronicles 32 and Isaiah 37. You'll remember during the period of the divided kingdom uh, of Israel, the nation was split into two kingdoms. 
each with their own kings and their own capitals, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. The Lord judged the northern kingdom for her years of repeated unfaithfulness and adultery after false gods. Yahweh actually permitted Assyria uh, to come in, uh, Assyria, who, uh, an empire that had gained enormous power in the ancient Near East at that time, to come in and conquer the northern kingdom and capture her people. Meanwhile, in the southern kingdom of Judah, Hezekiah begins to reign. And he was faithful to Yahweh, we're told, like his father David. He cleansed the temple in Jerusalem. He restores faithful worship. The southern kingdom experiences something of a renewal under Hezekiah's reign. But we're told then, Assyrians, who were making their way around the surrounding nations of the ancient Near East, they're conquering people, the Assyrians come in to taunt Judah and threaten to take them over as they had done with their brothers in the north. And Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, sent his servant to deliver a message, a letter. And it said, in effect, we will defeat you. Your God and any gods of this land are no match for us. Take a look at what we've done in the north and surrender. No one's been able to stop us. No God has been able to deliver from our hand. How much less will your God deliver you? And as we saw in Isaiah 37, Hezekiah and his men do not respond immediately to this letter. Rather, Hezekiah takes the letter of threats from Sennacherib into the temple and spreads it before the Lord. Hezekiah prays to Yahweh of hosts, Lord of hosts, God of Jacob, God of Israel, and asks the Lord to defend his good name and deliver his people. He asks Yahweh to save so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that he alone is the one true God. With the knowledge of this imminent threat, Hezekiah takes refuge in the Lord and in his presence. Hezekiah and the people of Judah are in what appears to be an impossible situation. Assyria, this massive army, has laid waste all the surrounding nations and all their lands. They have cast all of those nations' gods into, into the fire. Assyria has even conquered and captured the northern kingdom. Assyria is the raging sea, toppling kingdoms throughout the world, swelling up and threatening the city of God. The impending attack from Assyria now threatened the very existence of Jerusalem, the Lord's city, the temple, and God's covenant people. Yet Hezekiah has confidence that Yahweh can deliver them from this great enemy. Yahweh is, after all, the Lord of hosts. Listen again to Hezekiah's words of encouragement to his people from 2 Chronicles 32. He says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Assyria may look strong, 
Sennacherib may look powerful, but he only has an arm of flesh. He is no match for the Lord of hosts. We have an invisible army he knows nothing about. Yahweh has angel armies prepared to do his bidding. Yahweh has power that Sennacherib knows nothing about. God is our refuge, our fortress, our strength. He fights our battles. When you meet troubled times, when you find yourself in difficult circumstances, impossible situations, where do you seek refuge? Are you looking for an arm of flesh? Where is your confidence? As Luther said, did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Sabaoth, Lord of hosts, his name. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle. The Lord has indeed won the battle for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. He has defeated sin and death and has overcome the world. Hear this from John 16. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And again from 1 John 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And in chapter 4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the, than he that is in the world. Look to the Lord for refuge. If the Lord is for us, who can be against us? Our psalmists express their utter confidence in the Lord in a time of great calamity. As the world around them is falling apart, the psalmists declare that God is our refuge. He is a fortress and shelter. We can be confident will not be moved or shaken. And quite literally, in the middle of the psalm, uh, in the description of the raging seas in verses 2 and 3, and the raging nations of verse 6, sandwiched between these two raging uh, images is this peaceful vision of confidence in the Lord in verses 4 and 5. We move from a scene where the world's falling apart as a result of raging and roaring seas to this stark contrast of a calm river with streams running through a city. And the city, we're told, is God's city, a city he inhabits, a city where he tabernacles. And this city is, is glad, we're told, because of a river. Why would a river with streams make the city glad? The river represents the city's life source. Even though the city is surrounded by enemies on every side, she has this hidden source to keep her flourishing. But the river is not just some generic life source. The river represents God's life-giving presence dwelling with her. God is in the midst of her, the psalmist says. And she will not be moved because God is with her. And because God is with her, he will help her in her trouble. The presence of God is a cause for joy and confidence for the people of God. 
Now, I said that the river is a symbol of God's presence among his people. How do I know that? Uh, it says the river makes the holy city glad. But how do I know that that's God's presence with them? Well, the psalm is drawing on imagery that the scriptures build up throughout the storyline of the Bible. The river in the sanctuary first shows up in Eden. Eden is on a mountain, and the river flows out of Eden into the world. Before the fall, Eden is a sanctuary where the Lord visits his people. And Adam is a priest in that sanctuary who is to serve and guard as the Levitical priests do later in Israel's story. So this is the first river in a sanctuary that we see in scripture. And later in Israel's story, when the Lord sets up his sanctuary again amongst his people in the tabernacle, the movable tent of meeting, we see a new Eden where God visits his people and dwells among them, albeit behind a veil. In that tabernacle complex, there is a bronze basin of water between the altar and the tent itself. And later, when that tabernacle is glorified and transformed into a permanent temple, this bronze basin becomes 10 giant bronze basins that each hold around 240 gallons each. And they form, uh, five on each side, a kind of architectural river flowing out of the sanctuary. Like Eden, the river of the temple flows out of the sanctuary and into the world. These bronze basins were also sitting on stands, five on each side, that each had chariot wheels and lion, oxen, and cherubim designed on them so that the basins also formed a kind of chariot. Uh, the basins depict both a river and a chariot. So the river sits on top of the chariot. So how does this symbolize Yahweh's presence? This becomes more explicit throughout the rest of Scripture. In Ezekiel 10, when the, Lord, the glory of the Lord departs from the temple, Yahweh's royal chariot leaves, in effect, taking the river with him. This imagery makes more explicit the connection between the presence of the river and Yahweh's presence in the midst of the city. The river is God's life-giving presence. Later, in Ezekiel 47, when Ezekiel is shown the vision of a new temple, he is shown a great river, too deep to wade across, flowing out of the temple sanctuary. The Lord has returned in a greater fullness. The great river heals the sea. It brings life to the trees and plants so that their fruit becomes food and their leaves are used for healing. And all of this river imagery culminates in the New Testament where Jesus tells the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never be thirsty. But the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. And as we read in our gospel lesson in John 7, Jesus says to the people, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being, will flow rivers of living water. John then says, but this, he said, in reference to the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
So for John, Jesus is the holy tabernacle who dwells among us with the river of life flowing out from him. And this river is the spirit of God himself. Those who come to Jesus and believe in him are made into many temples, miniature sanctuaries with the river of life flowing out of us to the nations. The spirit is the living water, the river, the presence of the Lord among his people that makes them glad. So the church, the city of God, is a safe haven for God's people because the church has the Lord as her fortress. When we gather together, as we are this morning, as the church, it is here that we experience God's presence in a unique way. God's spirit is with us in this gathering. We are taught God's promises in his word. We are told stories of God's acts of faithfulness for his people. And our confidence in the Lord is renewed. We're washed in the waters of baptism. There's a stream right here in our midst. We're fed spiritual food and drink at the Lord's table. In the church, we have a hidden life-giving source that our enemies know nothing about. God's very presence in us. The prophet Jeremiah riffs off the imagery of the blessed man in Psalm 1, who's like a tree planted by streams of water. Hear what Jeremiah says in chapter 17. He says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Those whose confidence is in the Lord do not fear in times of trouble or times of hard circumstances. They're not anxious about the future and they continue to bear fruit because they have an endless supply. They're not looking to their outward circumstances for strength. They're not looking or seeking for an alternative refuge or strength because they know that the Lord is with them. Their trust is in the Lord himself. They look to him and to his promises for strength and confidence. So the Lord's presence with us is a reason for great confidence. Let's briefly consider the Lord's power as a source of confidence in this psalm. In verses 7 and 11, the psalmist confessed, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. In this confession, we see confidence in God's power and in his covenant faithfulness. He is the Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of armies. He has immeasurable power. He is able to deliver from any foe. He is a stronghold. He's a shield, able to protect from enemies. And yet, that great power is only good news if the Lord is also for us. If you owe a great debt that you cannot repay, knowing the name of a billionaire does you no good. Likewise, knowing someone who wants to pay your debt but has no money is no use either. It is only good news if someone has the means and the willingness to help you. And thanks be to God that the Lord is not only the Lord of hosts and stronghold, but he's also the God of Jacob, 
That is, the God who keeps covenant with his people. He is the God who has promised to bless the families of the earth through the seed of Abraham. And he has graciously adopted us into his covenant family and promised to be for you. The psalmists are invoking God's covenant promise. I will be your God and you will be my people. The Lord is called Emmanuel with us, as in Emmanuel. He is with us. He's on our side. He's in our corner. Ultimately, if God is with us, nothing can touch us. We have confidence that he will keep us. Even if we lose our lives, our enemies can't ultimately stop us. The Lord is both powerful and our Father. The fact that he is powerful and that he is on our side is a reason for great confidence. Our confidence in the Lord is also strengthened when we consider the Lord's past faithfulness. In verse 8, the psalmist invites the congregation to come, behold the works of the Lord. That is, remember God's acts of deliverance in the past. Earlier in the psalm, the Lord is called a well-proven help. The Lord has shown himself to be faithful in the past. The psalm asserts God will help her when morning dawns. How does he know that? How does he know God will help her when morning dawns? Because that is when the Lord has delivered his people in the past. The Lord drowned Pharaoh and his army in the heart of the sea when the morning dawned. The Lord delivers at dawn. The women found the empty tomb at early dawn and heard the announcement that Christ had risen, trampling down death. When you are in distress, remember and recount the Lord's faithfulness to us as his people. Remember his faithful acts in your own life. Israel's history and the church's history are our history. We are adopted into the family of God. These are our stories. The Lord has been faithful to deliver his people over and over and over again. And we should attend again and again to these stories since we are so quick to forget them. So our confidence comes from remembering the Lord's works in the past. In times of trial, remember the Lord's kindness in your own life history and our brothers and sisters' life history. How he was faithful to you in your illness. Remember how he brought you through difficult situations. How he has delivered you from past sins or troubles. Some of you are in a dark valley. Enemies all around you. Consider the works of the Lord. Remember his faithfulness. And increase your confidence in him that he will act again. Lastly, our confidence in the Lord comes from knowing the Lord's promises concerning our future. In the rest of verse 8 through verse 10, we see the future hope of the Lord's purposes. He will be victorious. He will bring peace and restore true worship. Specifically, we see the desolations he has brought. In judgment, God destroys his enemies. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear and burns the chariot with fire. After Hezekiah brought his request to the Lord in the temple, the Lord speaks to Hezekiah through the prophet Isaiah. He tells him that he has heard his prayer 
and that he will fulfill his purposes in the world by preserving a remnant in Judah. He also tells them that he will defend the city and deal, deal with the king of Assyria. Then we're told in Isaiah 37 that the angel of Yahweh went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when Sennacherib goes home and is worshiping in the house of his God, he is struck down by his own sons. Those who make war on God's people make war on God himself. God will deal with those enemies. He listens to the pleas of his people and he acts. Let us remember this when we are faced with our own threats. We face both enemies without and within. In our day, we still have tyrannical political leaders who, like Sennacherib, defy the living God and think that they are unstoppable. Take heart. As we've seen, things do not bode well for those who blaspheme the Lord and attack his church. We live in a culture that is increasingly hostile toward the church, defying God's law and persecuting those who do not conform to their agenda. And for some of you, this threat hits home. Maybe you're, you have the threat of the loss of your job if you do not conform to that agenda. But have confidence. The Lord of hosts is with us. Some of you are struggling with illness or caring for a loved one who is struggling with illness. Take these threats to the Lord like Hezekiah did. Bring them into the temple before the Lord and plead your case. He will hear you and he will act. The Lord of hosts is with us. For others of you, maybe the biggest threat you're facing is your own flesh and temptation. Perhaps you're fighting addiction or recurring sin habits. Maybe the threat is a relational struggle or anxiety or deep depression. Take heart. The Lord of hosts is with us. He hears our pleas. The psalmist then switched to the, vo the voice of the Lord himself speaking. Be still and know that I am God. Now this is commonly used as a kind of proof text for private devotion or quiet time. And I don't, I don't think that's quite what this verse is after. Yahweh is speaking to the raging nations. He utters his voice and the earth melts. Be still or stop striving or literally drop the hand is more like drop your weapons, give up. He's issuing a warning for all those who oppose him and his people, a warning to the world, the flesh, and the devil. He's making the wars to cease through his command. He then makes known his purpose. The Lord is going to win. He will be victorious. His people will win too because he is with them. The gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom. Ultimately, the psalmist can look to the future in confidence. The Lord's plan is to be exalted among the nations and in the land. He will make his name great in all the world, bringing peace and ending all wars. And Jesus commissioned his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. This is the continuation and vehicle to fulfill God's plan to be exalted in all the earth. Jesus tells his people that he is with them, even to the end of the age. The Lord of hosts is with us. 
Psalm 46 is a song of confidence in our great and mighty God. It assures us of God's life-giving presence in our midst. It reminds us of his great power, that he is both Lord of hosts and our covenant God who is with us and for us. It calls us to remember the Lord's faithfulness to deliver us in the past. And it's also about God's faithfulness to his word of promise that he will vanquish his enemies and bring peace to the nations, bringing about his purposes in the world. He will restore true worship and be exalted among the nations and in the land. His promise to Abraham will be fulfilled through the Lord Jesus Christ. The blessing of the spirit of righteousness will flow out like a river to all the nations, and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Now let us continue our worship by giving of our tithes and offerings.